they say a picture is worth what? A thousand, a thousand words. words. I'll probably say more than a thousand words this morning, but I've also given you a picture. There's an insert in your, in your bulletin that looks like this. And I invite you to pull that out and we'll be referring to it. This is an icon of the day of Pentecost. Uh, icons aren't a very big part of the Reformed tradition, but as you all know with my, some of my schoolwork, that's what I've been studying is the Eastern Church. And icons are a big deal to them. And this is not so much uh, an historical picture, but a theological one. It communicates uh, the theological truth of what happened on the day of Pentecost. And so I'd like for us to work through this image just a bit. And I wonder uh, if it might also be something that you could take home with you and, uh, and place on your refrigerator or maybe even... Uh, this will make more sense later, uh, by your door. <clears throat> so let's begin to work our way through this image on Pentecost. Um, you'll notice that, I think maybe most obviously, there are number of figures seated in a semicircle. Uh, anybody counted those yet? Twelve. Twelve, okay. Well, that seems like it would make sense, doesn't it? Uh, this is the upper room. That is pictured here, the place where uh, after the ascension, you remember last week, uh, the two angels directed the apostles to go back to Jerusalem and wait for what? The gift of the Spirit. And so they go back to the upper room and they are praying. And so this is them gathered in prayer. <clears throat> we know that there were more than just 12 who were there. So again, these 12 represent for us the church. Uh, we confess one holy Catholic and apostolic faith, right? And so we receive the faith which is given to us through the apostles. And so here they're gathered together and they represent uh, the church as a whole. So they're gathered um, 12 together. How many on one side? Six. Six, Six on the other. And if we're going to start right in the center of this image. Because if you look, there's an open seat, isn't there? Right in the middle is an open space. Anybody have any guess who that seat is reserved for? Jesus. This seat belongs to Christ. Uh, he sits at the center of the church. In fact, in iconography, often an empty space is meant to reveal an invisible presence. And so what does Jesus tell us? Where two or three are gathered together in His name, He's with us. And so the same thing that we see in this image is true of us today, that Jesus Christ is present here, among us, with us, for us. And so in this image, He's given the highest seat, isn't He? Uh, so that's where we'll start. Christ at the center of the church. Uh, though He is ascended, He is still with us now by the power of the Spirit. I want to direct you up to the highest uh, point in this picture, the top of the page. And you'll see there <clears throat> something like part of a disc which disappears beyond the bounds of the page. And it's dark. Uh, this is something that you would see in many icons. It actually designates uh, the presence and the mystery of the living God. Um, 
in the Ten Commandments, it's commanded to make no images of me. And so this is a way of nodding or gesturing towards the reality of God, but in a way that is intentionally obscured. Um, that's not an image of a person, but um, communicates something. You'll notice it's, it's dark. Uh, something of the darkness into which Moses entered when he went up Mount Sinai and the darkness descended around him. Uh, the darkness speaks to something of uh, the mystery that is contained in God. There's two different ways of doing theology. One is called, sort of big words, but that doesn't matter. It's called cataphatic theology. It's positive words that you can say about God. Words that He's given us to be able to speak of who He is truly. And yet, apophatic theology is the other side of the same coin. Uh, we recognize that our words, that our categories cannot contain or restrain God. That there is, even when we say God is love, what we understand in that sense um, can't fully contain who God is. That our definition of love isn't good enough to meet the kind of love that God offers. And so there's this balance to be held. And so the darkness of the cloud points to that. This is not something that Moses can go in and control. This is something that is beyond him. He enters with fear and trembling. And so too, when we come before God, we do so with fear and trembling. So that's at the top of the image, but there are also 12 rays that are coming forth from that place, uh, from God, you might say. And those correspond with the 12 apostles, right? And then right in the center, there's one that is directly over the seat where Jesus sits, and it has a fork in it. There's two parts to that ray, indicating what you might imagine. The dual natures of Christ is both fully man and fully God. And so you see that the apostles are now connected to the Trinity by virtue of Christ who's in their midst in the power of the Spirit who now indwells them and who lights upon them with tongues of fire. Um, the third aspect of this picture I'd like to highlight is one of the most imposing. It's hard not to notice. It's these huge towers on either side and in the background. That's not just decorative. <clears throat> I believe these direct us towards the Tower of Babel. Do you remember this story from Genesis 11? Where humanity in pride and a desire to displace God decided that they would, using technological means, build a tower all the way up into the heavens so that they could take up residence where, well, I guess humanity from the beginning has wished they could be. Uh, what was the temptation with which the devil approached Eve? You will be like God. And so now, in Genesis 11, the um, you know, the people gather together and pool all their resources and work together trying to build a tower into the heavens so that they too could be like God. Um, you may, I don't know, find some relevance to that story in our present moment um, where by technological means, uh, we're sort of in the midst of 
doing something similar, I think. Um, and I don't, know, I don't know where artificial intelligence is going. I'm sure there's going to be lots of tremendous, you know, tremendously good things that come of that. Um, technology can be a two-edged sword, right? There are positives, but then there's also the unexpected consequences or the wrongful uses of things. Um, but the folks who are making these things, uh, some of them at least, have spoken pretty directly to the point that they understand themselves to be building a god, which is sort of disconcerting. Uh, a presence, which is always with you, which knows what you think and knows what you want and will direct you towards those ends. Um, a presence that is kind of building up through technological means to function in all the ways in which we sort of treat God. So I don't know exactly what to do with that yet, but I think it's something to pay attention to and to just be thinking about. Uh, they're going to put these in our phones and then maybe someday in our bodies down the road. I don't know. Uh, always with you. Always measuring. Always counting. Always directing. And the thing is that we'll begin to sacrifice ourselves for those desires and purposes and ends, um, which is the language of worship, right? We'll give up a lot of different things to have that. So it's, it's, it's an interesting moment. Uh, humanity is always trying to do this. It's not like this is some, I mean, this is maybe an unprecedented moment in some ways because of the technological capacity. But I think at the same time, there's also the same thing happening that always happens with us. What happened at the Tower of Babel? Humanity tried by power and authority and technological means to do something um, that they maybe weren't quite ready for. They weren't mature enough. That's the story of technology, isn't it? Like amazing progress, but then we're not quite mature enough to handle it. And so it ends up destroying people. And by technology, I mean everything from like, um, you know, Google to also like a sword. That was a new technology, right? It allowed lots of good, useful things. and It also allowed for you to kill people. And so humanity is in this interesting relationship with technology always. And so they tried to use it to climb up to heaven. It's not that God didn't want humanity there. That's, our, that's his intended purpose from the beginning that we would be together with him. It's the means by which we acquire that place that is different. And so in the story of the Tower of Babel, God comes down and confuses their languages so that they're no longer able to work together and in concert. And so things break down and they pull apart. What happens at Pentecost? The Spirit descends... And they begin to speak in tongues as the Spirit gives them utterance that all people are able to understand. It's the undoing of the Tower of Babel. God wants us to be in communion with Him and to raise us up by the Spirit into His presence to dwell with Him. That's the whole point of Christ coming and bringing the kingdom and inaugurating it. But it's not, um, it's not a kingdom that results from our grasping after power. It's one that comes from our opening ourselves to God's mercy and to His will first. 
So you see how these two stories are interrelated, Pentecost and the Tower of Babel, and also maybe a little bit how they speak to our present moment. The next part of the image that's connected is looking down and you see the apostles themselves. Because when the Spirit descends upon them, aligning upon them with tongues of fire, uniting them to God, they are also united to one another. Notice how they're positioned. Uh, they have uh, equal balance on either side. Um, typically, in uh, a picture, as we might see it painted, or picture that we see taken, we see depth in the image. We're supposed to be drawn kind of into it. But in icons, it's often in reverse. So typically, we would see the closest figures in an image as the largest figures. And as they recede into the background, they get smaller and smaller. But here, the folks who are farthest from us are actually the largest. So there's a balancing aspect that takes place. Um, even uh, as, as um, the image draws our eyes towards the seat of Christ, right, which is the, the largest place in the picture. You see the, the unity they have, but if you look carefully at them, it's not uniformity. All of the apostles are looking in slightly different directions, are they not? They're looking off this way, off that way. They're balanced. They're in unison. They're in unity together. And yet, there's slight differences. If you look to the figure in the center, the first one to the right, that's actually the Apostle Paul, who was not there at Pentecost. This is why it's a theological image. He was not there historically. But again, these 12 in the image represent the church. And so Peter's actually the first one on the left, and Paul is the first one on the right. You know it's Paul because he's bald-headed. I don't know if you can see that or not. And this is Paul. And Paul tells us that there is one spirit and many gifts. So when we receive the spirit in baptism, we are made one with Christ and each other. And yet the Spirit gives each of us gifts that develop within us because we are all unique creations of God. There's something individual and special and unique about each of you that God is drawing together here in this place for a particular purpose. And so yes, we're one in faith, we're one in Christ, and yet that doesn't make us bland. It actually makes us more who we truly are in ourselves because who we really are is who we are in Christ. So you can see that aspect of the image. But maybe you've been waiting for this mysterious figure in the bottom of the picture to be spoken of. Who is this strange character who actually stands outside the door? That arches a door. He's outside. It also is at the bottom of the image, and it looks an awful lot like a tomb, doesn't it? He has a crown upon his head. Ancient images of this picture, he's often a stooped figure because the crown is heavy. His face, though you can't see it uh, with the, in much clarity here, is weathered and old. He's wearing a garment upon his back. Uh, he's the figure now called Cosmos. Um, he's representative of humanity. In older pictures of this icon, there was actually a great number of people down in the bottom. And they all wore 
different clothing representing the fact that they were from every language and tribe and people and nation. They wore different clothes representing different cultures and different time periods. All of human history and over time they became condensed into this one figure. Uh, the crown is the heavy crown of sin. And the darkness is the heavy weight of death. And the robe is red because it's meant to represent all of the sacrifices, animal sacrifices and human sacrifices that had been offered to the gods throughout the ages. It's a picture of humanity trapped by sin and death. And yet there's one thing luminous here. He holds a bright white cloth upon which are 12 scrolls, which correspond to the 12 scrolls held in the hands of the apostles. Because at Pentecost, Peter tells us in the sermon directly after this, uh, Pentecost is a fulfillment of a prophecy given to the prophet Joel, that in those days the Holy Spirit will come and allow... Uh, the, the young men to speak in tongues and to speak in languages, uh, to speak a word to the world. And that word is the word of Christ. And so these apostles, gathered as they are in the power of the Spirit, anointed, united with God, united with each other, all with unique gifts, are, are bearing a scroll in their hands representing the word that they have to go and to speak. And this door is a door that they're called to go out. They're not called to just bask in the wonder and the splendor and the goodness of God's immediate presence in the upper room. He anoints them for a purpose and a mission. They're called to go out the door, to go to humanity, people from every language and tribe and people and nation, and to speak the word of Jesus, to speak the word of life, to tell them of the one who dwells in their midst, to provide signs of the Holy Spirit's anointing upon them. And so this door is the door to our local church. This door is that door. Or that door because we have too many doors. <laughs> right? Maybe it's just the sanctuary door. That door is that door. And so we come and we're united. We're blessed by this, the presence of Christ in our midst. And we're anointed by the Spirit. And we're called to go out with a word to speak. And a word to share. We're called to go to a world trapped in sin and death and thinking that technology is going to solve all our problems. And we're called to go and speak a word of truth and love and life. But that door goes both directions, doesn't it? Who's the door? We talked about this a few weeks ago. Who's the door? Jesus. Jesus. I'm the door, he said. Jesus is the door. So we go out the door and others come in the door and when they come in the door... This is what we hope they will experience. Not in a word, but in an image. We desire that when people enter these doors, that they would sense the invisible presence of Jesus Christ in our midst and at our head. For He is head of this church and all, all the church. He is our Lord. He is the one who is in charge of everything. Property acquisitions or refusals or whatever it ends up being. Jesus 
is the one who's in our midst. We want people to recognize and to experience, and some of this is out of our control, but we want them to experience the presence of the Holy Spirit. We want people to experience the unity that we share and the love that we share with one another that doesn't come from ourselves, but comes to us from God. We want people to see that though we are one in love, we also are unique. And we have individual gifts that God has given us, not just so that we can stand out, but so that we can use them to bless one another in service to God. We want people to know that when we come here, it's not just so that we can think we've got it all figured out, this is just wonderful what God has given us here, but it's so that we can be sent into the world with a word of love and a testimony and a witness that we can gather others back into these doors and perpetuate the pattern. That's what I hope for, anyway. And I think that's what we see happening. Thanks be to God. Yeah. Pentecost. In a picture. Final word. You know, we have a word to speak, not a picture to share. <laughs> I don't know if you started... If you want to share your testimony, if you start waving this around in front of people's faces, if that would go off too well, I don't know. Maybe it would. But um, I just want you to think about this for a second. Icon means image. Uh, and you are created in the image of God. You're actually the image. Your life is the image, the picture that people can have of what it looks like to live a life anointed by the Spirit and drawn into love in Christ and to walk the path of repentance and forgiveness and love and hope and mercy. And so maybe, maybe you want to put this by your door, your house where you go in and out to remind you of your purpose when you leave. Uh, or maybe you just want to scrap it and be the picture yourself. It is Pentecost today. The Holy Spirit is the Lord and giver of life. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.